Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our community and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Cherry Smith, an Irish writer and poet who lives in London. In 2022, Cherry was nominated as a Fellow for the Royal Society of Literature and she is Associate Professor in Creative and Critical Writing at the University of Greenwich. Critically acclaimed, Cherry has had four poetry collections published and a debut novel, Hold Still, prior to her current work, If the River is Hidden. Some of her work is collaborative and performance-based. She toured her poetry collection, Famished, working with the internationally acclaimed composer Ed Bennett and vocalist Lauren Kinsella, one of the foremost vocal innovators of the contemporary European jazz scene. Her current work, If the River is Hidden, is a collaboration with Craig Jordan Baker. This has also been developed for performance with the flautist Amir McGowan, one of the world's most versatile exponents of both the classical and Irish flute. If the River is Hidden is a shared pilgrimage over eight days. Cherry Smith and Craig Jordan Baker walk the length of the River Ban, Northern Ireland's longest river. A hybrid of prose and poetry, it feels like a call and response between friends, memories, ancestors, communities, the displaced, and with the river itself. Hello, Cherry, and a very warm welcome to the podcast series. Thanks, Paula. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, So much, so many layers have, have come out of this particular work, If the River is Hidden. And I wondered if a a starting point could be to ask how you both reflect on feeling like fraudsters early on in the book. And there's a line where you say, a homeland Craig can't quite claim and I can't quite renounce. Yeah, that's completely key to the to the book itself and to our discussions before we did the pilgrimage. We had many discussions as friends and I learned that he only spent holidays in Ireland. His grandfather was Irish, grew up with Irish stories. And then I left Ireland when I was 22, a long time ago. So we both have this, you know, we're joined by our love of writing and our love of Irish literature. But actually, you know, are we still Irish? Were we ever Irish? He never lived there. I don't, I've lived most of my life in London. So it was that kind of question. Could we together revisit it? And I had my own ghosts with growing up and the troubles in the North. And he had his sort of sense that he was always seen as English. So we were both quite tentative like how could we do it but together then we had in a way the courage or the willfulness to try and do it yes certainly uh, I think courage really belongs to to so much of your work actually Um, and in terms of this 
particular journey, this pilgrimage, it does feel like a wrestle with belonging and not belonging um, almost at the same time. And I wondered whether it was more challenging, perhaps, than you expected, and um, perhaps from, from, from both of your point of view, um, in terms of that personal and philosophical wrestle. Mm. Yeah, wrestling's a good verb. Um, I think for me, when I first left the North, I was determined never to live there again. And I just felt quite scarred by it and scarred by those awful sectarian divisions and really the kind of role of British imperialism, if you like. And it, it felt just very complex and overwhelming. And I used to go back uh, as I say in the preface to the book, and write in places like Donegal, Connemara, West Cork, where I could just be, yeah, I was from the north, but I could be there as an Irish person. And I felt very connected to the land and Irish language. And and how uh, the question for me was, could I walk in my own end of the country in the north um, and and feel bring that look, bring that way of looking at Irish identity to the north and and sort of have permission to do that, perhaps. Um, I didn't really know what I'd find. I knew it was still very conflicted. Um, and, you know, I, I was, I'm a, well, I was brought up in a, a Protestant tradition. Craig was brought up in a Catholic tradition. So it felt like we were also together facing those sort of divides and looking for them and seeing how we reacted to that and it felt very open and in a way that was one of the most scary things because I said to him at one point it's like braiding air and water the air we're breathing the water we're walking beside what is it and we didn't know for so long what it was we just went on instinct um to walk from the source to the mouth and take eight days and see what happened. And it could have gone more of a, in a magazine style of talking to people and a journalistic style, but it actually went very inward. Very few people were kind of out on the streets because it was just coming out of COVID. And so it was very, as you say, philosophical and that question of being very present, what do you see in the moment and what, you know, whether it's a Game of Thrones centre or a little baby wren coming out of the hedge, how do you relate to that and make a narrative that could inv invoke a sense of place and also invoke it for lots of people that, you know, made some people who heard it recently talk about their home river, whether it was in Africa or in France and I thought, oh, that's that's very exciting. That's got that mobility, which I didn't really expect. Yeah, and and it does feel like, um, you know, as you progress the journey, um, perhaps uh, your sense of identity has twists and turns, almost like the river itself. And when you talk about um, what is visible and what is hidden? Is it more about what you both uncover that really is what comes to define your identity? Yeah, um, the sense of identity twisting and turning. 
sometimes, you know, as Craig says, this is boring. What are we doing here? <laughs> you know, missing the city, <laughs> missing the cosmopolitan worlds that we, we spend most of our time in. And then, you know, realizing that we would have to go back quite a few generations. I mean, I was very aware of that ancestral need to walk um, before we had cars, you know, where it was a horse and cart. And before that, you know, so many people in Ireland walked and walked barefoot. And I was just really thinking about that kind of weight of history, if you like, and weight of ancestry. And we... Yeah, I think a lot of things probably remained hidden to us. Um, what what he didn't, Craig didn't expect to be writing about caring for his mum who was dying of cancer. And I kind of thought, well, you know, my dad was also quite frail by the end of the journey. And it became much more of how a river goes into the sea and loses itself. And that became a metaphor for death. And in a way, I think it accompanied me he died quite soon after the journey and before the book was finished. And it felt like that was something that I didn't know I was looking for. How could the river give me something back that connected to land and ancestry and losing a parent, really? Yeah, it's almost as if, you know, it it took on a parental role, perhaps, by the end of that pilgrimage. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, and I think Ireland now has a different sense to me that I don't have my father living. So what what is Ireland? Is it becoming a father? Uh, should I be there? And, you know, I I think that's quite difficult for lots of people when they lose a parent or parents. That, that, that crisis of identity becomes much sharper. And I tried to resolve it. I just, you know, near the end of the book, I say I came to love the itinerary of flux. And just that idea of flux has been in me my whole adult life since I left Ireland. And I go back in my work. I go back to write there. I go back to be with family. But a lot of my kind of artistic and intellectual life is very firmly based in London. I also lived in New York. And I love the city. It's just this other pool that is connected to spirit or soul or if you believe in any of that, I don't know. Mm. Well, it's interesting because, of course, um, mythology uh, or, or spiritual or obviously uh, religion comes into play um, in this book. And you refer to the river goddess. Um, but also, I think there was a, a wrestle there, if you like, in terms of... Um, those ideas around feminine power and, and there was a line where um, uh, I think this is from another article and you said I've been taught a subtle shunning of anything feminine with power yes well haven't we all I mean I was very involved in feminist struggles in the 80s and I thought you know overthrow the patriarchy you know we're changing language we're changing how we take up space it felt very very positive and kind of progressive and you know unfailing and then we look you know 30 years later we're having similar debates around you know whether it's equal pay or you know domestic violence there's so many things that women haven't been able to take the power that's theirs and then there's a sort of an essentialism around the idea of the goddess that 
you know, somehow it's about this innate female power and it excludes men. Or I just found it sometimes very inhibiting and even cliched, sentimental maybe. And when I heard, I didn't really even know that the river ban that I grew up next to came from the Irish and Banna, which means goddess and is also connected to the word for woman. And I didn't realize there was this powerful, you know, enactment of healing and going to the river for cures and setting up shrines and all those things that would have happened when they they saw the sort of animistic quality of the river. And that I, I kept kind of turning away from it the whole walk. And later I thought, I'm going to have to address this and look at it. And and since then, I think there are quite a few artists beginning to to do that more and beginning to revisit it as a way to counter the balance of, um, you know, overconsumption through capitalism and the male structures of power. And I can really see the really potent energy in that metaphor now much more than I did. And I think I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't walked the river, been, you know, on it and in it for eight days. And really that was that was really kind of unexpected, but I'm glad that happened. And it was funny because when we'd finished the first draft and showed it to the publisher, he said, you're both holding back, go in again, you know, go deeper. And there were areas we were holding back around the, the troubles and the, the feminine power for me. Um, so it uh, it's, it's um, often... Yeah, when you think you're going to get away with <laughs> dealing with something in a much more uh, perhaps easy or, I don't know, way. And then you realize, no, 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 you have to go in there again. And, um, you know, and we grew up with Cahollan and Finn McCool and it was, you know, these gigantic male heroes. And they even, you know, threw bits of land, you know, they picked up Loch Ness and threw it to a giant in Scotland. That's how we got the Isle of Man. I mean, it was very atavistic and powerful, but the women were never in those stories. The wife of, you know, Finn McCool was there. But it was it was really interesting because um, I think it was that uh, writer, it's Marlon James, I think he's a Jamaican writer, and he said, I... I started to do research because I didn't grow up with my own mythologies. And I feel like, you know, I'm just beginning to tap into that uh, need for a deeper respect for an ancient culture and also the language that came out of that, Irish, which I wasn't taught in school because I had an English Protestant schooling yeah no it, it really does um tap into so many uh interesting uh considerations um certainly the courage to go deeper um because we are talking about deeply traumatic histories and also coinciding with deeply personal times in your lives um as you were saying Craig lost his mum your father w- was very frail and perhaps it's worth noting um that um, 2021, of course, uh, when you would have been embarking on this pilgrimage, marked the 100th anniversary of when the Northern Ireland border was established. And that has raised so much trauma 
historically that still resonates today. Um, I wondered how much more that perhaps impacted your your thoughts and feelings as you undertook that journey. Yes, absolutely. I was very aware of that. And and occasionally in the more Protestant areas, you'd see a little, you know, happy birthday, a hundred birthday, but it was a very si- small sign, quite muted on a roundabout. And I thought, you know, there's no big, really big celebrations here because it, it feels there is such a lot of deep ambivalence and deep conflict around the partition of Ireland and its its continued awkwardness you know being part of the UK and half the people not being happy with that and now it's really interesting demographically as you probably know for the first time Catholics outnumber Protestants in the north so what is that sense of identity going to be um that idea of being unionist and Irish and a lot of unionists are applying for Irish passports because they want the mobility and freedom of going into Europe and mm. so I think there's a I think a third of the people now, young people, don't identify with either side. And that all of that we were very interested in in exploring and, and um being open again to learning about. Yeah, and it's interesting that through this book you you pose the question, can this be an Irish poem? And is that the same way as raising those questions around Irish identity, uh, belonging, where we belong, changing borders, shifting identities, perhaps? Is that is that the purpose of that question? Can this be an Irish poem? Yeah, because a lot of people in Northern Ireland call themselves Northern Irish, not Irish. So I, I kind of... I, I'm, I've always identified with a much broader sense of Ireland. And now, of course, there's this whole movement. It's almost like a citizens' assembly movement called Future Ireland. And Mm. they're having cross-community discussions and debates to really say, we can't wait for the politicians to do this. What how do we envision envision it? And how could it be run and in what form and shape? And so, yeah, what what would a future Ireland be like and and where would people like Craig and I fit into that if we don't live there but we are very psychically connected to it and still working through a lot of it in our in our own writing yeah and of course um the river I understand is often labeled as the band divide um you know this is very significantly um, symbolic, isn't it, of division, of polarisation, sadly. Yes, the East is more towards the wealthier side and, and the West, like the West of Ireland, um, is is seen as much more poor and deprived. And I mean, we didn't see an awful lot of evidence of that, but I think it's still invoked, yeah, mm. very much so. And so... Yeah, and so you chose to leave uh, Northern Ireland, I think, around uh, the age 18. And it's actually a line from Craig where he says um, uh, she didn't know that in choosing Trinity, she was treading in a lineage of Protestant control and discrimination, the very reason for the troubles in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I was 18. I wanted to stay in Ireland. I definitely didn't want to go to England. And I ended up, 
you know, not even realizing how significant Trinity was in terms of being the the Protestant university and looked into that history later. But it meant that I was in Dublin when the hunger strike strikers were dying and there was a huge, you know, upswell of emotion and it was very confusing because I'd been brought up not in the unionist tradition, but in a, a Protestant nationalist tradition, if you like. And and yet I had no way of expressing it or talking about it. And just being in Dublin at that time, that that moment where I had to choose to, as I say, enter history through another door. And I remember it it was it just made complete sense to me to be supportive of that liberation struggle and then you know as I as I grew politically I got you know I could see the links with apartheid South Africa stuff that was happening in Nicaragua I mean I've always um, been aware of those power structures and you know then kind of delighted to know that there were all these revolutionaries who were Protestant like Wolf Tone and people um, who tried to lead Irish rebellions against English occupation and um, yeah that's that's something I've been very passionate about um, mm. and so time. yeah and so even then at 18 um, would that have felt um, like a, a brave act in some ways to to head south or, or was it more relief because I, I understand and um, from the preface there was already a lot of of hurt. You refer to being at a disco in 1976 and hearing about the bombs uh, in Coleraine, if I've got the right pronunciation. Yes, Coleraine. Yeah, that was my father's shop that had been his yeah. grandfather's. So, yeah, it was gutted. And, um, yeah, it, it had a lot of repercussions for my family. He ended up in hospital very ill with it and... It just, again, sealed that idea of I want out of here. And, and you know, he'd, he'd been very open to employing Catholics and Protestants, and it just felt like there was no way forward out of it. Um, going to Dublin was a sort of tradition for Protestants from the north, um, but it was more when I identified more with nationalism that that was seen as, you know, perhaps more unusual but there were there were plenty who who did and my parents would have been quite nationalistic as well so there was that in my background yeah and and you you say um that your your dad after that incident of the bombing uh that he was quiet for a long time and I wondered if you know a long time might have been describing a significant period of trauma um processing those events or obviously oh yeah I mean he had a breakdown he was in the psychiatric unit for quite a long time and kind of was troubled a lot for, for the rest of his life in many ways um and he gave up the business quite soon after that and yeah it was a it was a big um yeah it was a trauma definitely yeah, yeah. So by the time you've gone to Trinity, you, you are carrying pretty huge experiences, aren't you, around fear and risk uh, and, and threat? 
Yeah, and in a way, we we normalized it so much. And I wasn't living in Derry or Belfast, so in no way did I feel I was affected like other people. But I remember bringing an American friend I met back one holiday, and we were all saying, oh, it didn't really, you know, affect us that much. It was just, we had to do this. We had to show our bags when we went to shops. We had to watch unattended parked cars. We had to do this and that. And he was saying, well, all these things are part of how you had to cope. It's not nothing. It's not a normal society. And um, Mm. it really, yeah, it struck home how we, we, we really accommodated a lot of what was very, very unnormal. And you can see it in Anna Burns's fantastic novel, Milkman, the way this sort of paramilitary patriarchy has such a strong hold and how you behave, how you think, what you say. And um, I I think in some ways those those attitudes are very, very enforced in the North still. And that's mm, one of the reasons yeah. why I find it quite difficult to be there. Yeah, yeah, uh, living in a in a grip of fear. And actually, this was something I I, I noticed um, in relation to your work, famished, um, that you um, also referred to silence. You know, having just reflected on your your father being quiet for a very long time, um, you talked about a second generation Irish woman. Um, who apparently could never say the words, the famine, but left a gap in her sentence. And it was about recognising that that silence was really a statement of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, there was survivor's guilt. And then there was just the the trauma of what people had gone through. And one of the, the dedicates of that book was a young woman who was sent to Sydney to you know, lots of Irish women, I think 3,000 were sent to Sydney as part of this scheme, the Earl Grey Orphan Scheme. And, um, you know, they were to provide wives for men. And one of them was declared insane when she arrived. And and this doctor looked at her and, and said, no, she's not insane. She's just needs tenderness and time. And I, I find that just really humbling that, you know, this woman could, could come through it. And, um, just wonder whether how she survived really but um yeah it was uh it was a very difficult subject to go back to I felt like I didn't know enough and seeing the the boats coming in across the Mediterranean made me think of the coffin ships and then I thought well I don't know enough about the coffin ships where were they going and why did so many people die and and then this uh at one point, I saw this this um, photo of Queen Victoria on the tube, and it was about a, a, an exhibition about her life. And someone had scratched in graffiti across her forehead, the Irish famine. And that was in 2012. So that was like a good, you know, five years before I began the research. And I just felt this bolt of recognition and wonder who had written this and I didn't know what Queen Victoria had done during the famine um, uh, when Ireland was part of her empire and next door. And it really just kept haunting me and kept coming back. You don't know enough. Find out and inhabit it. Inhabit some voices and, and the history and it created voices as well. And 
it was a, a really fascinating and difficult journey, but it felt like I couldn't turn away from it. It was just so demanding to be done. And it really was mm. an act of lament and an act of, of mourning, really, that a lot of the lament and mourning wasn't done because people didn't have the strength to do it or they left or they died themselves. And just looking at that incredible schism in, in Irish culture, there's less culture afterwards and less lamenting by women. It, it was a really such a, um, a shocking and profound split in what had gone before. And yeah, it was, it was very powerful really being, being around it for quite a few years. And, and as you said at the beginning, then I, I didn't really feel like reading a couple of minutes from it in a poetry reading. I felt like having a performance with music and with this extraordinary vocalization, like almost vocalizing the blight and to create a space where people could release some of that emotion and silence. And historically, historians say, oh, there's been plenty around the famine. There've been plenty of, you know, memorials all over the world, but as I say, a brass statue can't speak. And having some of this spoken was really extraordinary. And I always did a Q&A at the end because people needed to sit afterwards and recover in a quiet sort of safe space. And it was really incredibly powerful and um, yeah. compelling. Yeah, and I, and and even just going back to um, the the visual uh, that triggered this um, that image of uh, Irish famine being scrawled across um, the forehead of Queen Victoria, it really feels like you're looking at a, a punk album, a bit like the Sex Pistols, um, "God Save the Queen." You know, it's that kind of rage, that necessary rage, mm. uh, and, and and statement. Um, but in you know, in this in this much 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 earlier historic context, and how did you manage dealing with such a terrible history of a deliberately um, induced famine in terms of anger and partly you're managing I suppose the the, the curiosity of understanding the, the truth mm -hmm. about that history mm -hmm. but it's the it's, mm -hmm. it's the courage to face mm -hmm. it as well. It is oddly not as depressing and heavy as not knowing you know, once you do the research, it's depressing, but you also, it's also why I've said, you know, a big section of the middle of the book is those acts of resistance. You know, you always want to know what people did, how they broke the windows of bakeries, how they slashed open the, the sacks that were carrying this awful corn that they had to try and cook. And, you know, women led those, lots of those rebellions. And I just felt so excited and empowered by hearing those stories and I looked for them in the research I sought them out and this woman who got fined for walking across the lawn of some Anglo-Irish landlord and you know so I wrote a, vo a poem a sonnet in her voice and that felt incredible to to pull these stories together and enliven them again and I got sick quite a bit I had the flu twice I had you know I was I was not 
you know, I felt like I was definitely carrying a lot of it, walking around with these blankets around me and thinking, yeah, I'm really um, living part of this uh, experience and going to that place like Duloch Valley where many people died on a starvation walk to try and get into the workhouse and and being there with my waterproofs on and my walking boots and thinking of them and their bare feet. And it was very somatic. Um, absolutely. But in the end, I just, I just felt, um, really clear about the role of British imperialism in, in that struggle and in Eritrea and in India, you know, I tried to look at it in a more global, um, perspective and also looking at, the the world hunger now and food insecurity and all these things we depend on coming from all over the world and the the sort of luxury and and terrible waste of that so it felt like it was engaging with very contemporary issues as well which was quite you know um important for me in terms of my development um so it wasn't in a way just a national um, structure it was an international picture I was trying to build yeah and and it's 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 interesting although uh personally very harsh on you that similarly to when you were writing if the river is hidden and as you were saying your father was very fragile um and sadly um he you 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 did lose him a few months later but at the time of writing famished i understand you were also dealing with other sadnesses um i think you lost um a very close friend um a friend that may have been dealing with cancer so you have spoken about how much mm. grief and fear can go into your poetic process and it's mm. it's happened significantly with with both of these um books mm-hmm. yeah yeah well, I really believe in the metaphor of a metaphor as healing. I believe when you're stuck in something, whether it's terrible pain or loss or fear, once you have a metaphor, somehow you can see it outside yourself. You don't carry the suffering, you know, as the Buddhists say, you know, everyone suffers, but you learn how to suffer well. And writing helps me to suffer well. Um, you know, you being around someone who was who was dying and incredibly frail and and then the compassion for him becoming the compassion for those million people who died and the million who emigrated and being very very aware of mortality and the transience of life and and I mean I have a meditation practice and that definitely helped me to have the courage to look at it directly and keep looking and um I think that's that's very important with, you know, poetry of witness, um, this idea that you you keep going back to look at it and write about it. People think, oh, we've written about the Holocaust enough, but clearly we haven't. If there's still deniers, we have to find new ways to embody it again. And I've always been fascinated by how poets have done that. And uh yeah, there's a wonderful poet called Ilya Kaminsky, who's actually originally from the Ukraine and lives in America. And he wrote a beautiful collection called Deaf Republic. And um, it becomes a kind of metaphor for a totalitarian state, you know, the, the people who are rounded up because they can't hear. And I just 
um, yeah, I think it's very liberating and it does nourish you when when you either read it or you, you write it yourself. Yeah, it's very interesting reference because actually um, that came up in my interview with the poet Adam Cameling, uh, also in this season, uh, who writes about um, the intergenerational trauma of his Jewish heritage and Ilya Kaminsky um, was, was a reference point. Um, would you say that going back to your journey, your pilgrimage, um, if the river is hidden, that that was a revisiting of intergenerational trauma? Yes, I would say that, yeah. And I think I think I sort of feel like, you know, if it took many years to address the famine, it was kind of working its way through my mind. And in a way, the troubles have also been like that for me. How do I go back? I don't want to go back. I don't want to look at it. But it's also what I carry. Um, and it was intergenerational because Craig is 20 years younger than me. And I love the idea that we were connecting through through our steps, um, through, you know, very different histories. And um, and then, yeah, the sense that in a way um, I'm the only one in my family. Well, there, there's only one to finish university and the only one who lives you know, a life that is much more unconventional than what I was brought up to be. And and I think that um, finding, going back to find a voice and a belonging when you have kind of rejected a lot of the, the culture that was offered to you or expected to you to follow um, is also important work to, to create a belonging that is very plural and very tolerant. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Craig actually um, raises this um, in uh, one of his prose sections uh, in The River is Hidden, and um, it's in reference to, to you. He reflects on your life and says, despite the years of homophobia and sectarianism, the landscape didn't question her presence. So is the landscape a place of home? The landscape's very much a place of home, yes. And uh, I've always felt incredibly connected to it and protective of it. And that's also another thing that we haven't really addressed, that, that kind of growing threat to the landscape through pollutants and um, insecticides, pesticides, all of those things. Um, and... I, I suppose, yeah, I feel that it didn't judge me and I always went back to it in my imagination where I couldn't hold the struggles of the North in, in many ways, but I, I always felt like I stayed connected to the land. And there's that bit in it where I realised that for many years when I went back, I was always looking out of the side of my eye for a guy moving around in the fields who didn't look as though he belonged. He was always like a city man in the country wearing, you know, like city clothes. And I used to think, what's he doing there? And and is is he with another man? Are there weapons? Is something hidden? That that sense of the land also being a place where bodies were hidden, like Jean McConville, who who was a mother, um, who was 
taken away and, and killed. Um, and, you know, those those things are still part of the scar, I guess, for, for many people. And uh, it was really wonderful to just go and walk in the land and not feel like I was going to come across something extremely violent and um, unexpected in that way. Mm. Oh, yeah. And just meant when you just mentioned um, what was hidden um, again, um, notably, you do ask along the way, uh, where are the women's places? And I yeah. think this is after, yeah, this is after noting a series of orange lodges or, or very male uh, orange men, male spaces. Uh, yeah, and you, orange you men and golf clubs and men's sheds and um, what are they? Mason, Masonic lodges. I mean, it, it was extraordinary. Every mile there was some place for them to meet and they were all quite barricaded as well. And then the women, I don't know where the women meet, um, it, but there weren't many places built for them, that's for sure. Yeah, and one of the places that perhaps you do acknowledge, uh, sadly, is um, the women that were forced to cross the sea, and you really uh, were referring to uh, abortions um, and having to almost leave in secret um, and, and carrying carrying yet more burdens. But that almost was one of perhaps the only places that could be identified as one of their places. Mm, yeah, isn't that tragic that they had mm. to, yeah, and they still have to travel, Paula. I mean, it's it's mm. now, you know, they're legally bound to provide abortion, but they don't do it. And that was the one thing that came out of the whole exposure of the DUP around Brexit and was that, you know, their, their disgusting sexist you know and anti-female politics you know all of that was exposed and people were saying to me I didn't even know what that all meant there you know people in England had so little knowledge of it and what they got away with under the sort of cape the dark cape of the troubles is quite extraordinary and um, yeah they, they still have to have to travel it's not being you know lots of kind of rape crisis centres and abortion clinics have been forced to close and have had terrible abuse as well. Yeah, it's it's, it's so shocking, isn't it? And when we're in the, the context now of the increasing abuse and, and oppression of the women of Afghanistan, you know, that oh, this yeah. is a yeah. contemporary conversation. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you actually raise another line uh, I, that I think is is yours, um, is making the point that you say, but women are not always people, and yeah. who will protect us? Yeah, who will protect us from our protectors? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know, I was just, like, raging then. <laughs> yeah, I was, understandably. I was, yeah, I was just thinking... You know, we know all this sewage is going into the rivers and the seas and, and the companies are, you know, get away with it all the time. They get fined a little bit, but, you know, people ring up and and report it and nothing happens. And it's it's just absolutely horrifying all over the UK, the amount of poison that we're putting into the environment. Um, and, yeah, I think that was a, a, a very 
sort of strong connection with the land as, as you know kind of being made into a junkie through the phosphates and the nitrates that are being poured into it and this idea that you know like rivers that the, the George Monbiot has has tried to champion the river Wye and it's actually completely fetid and and disgusting now and most of the ban is is still healthy enough but it's it's going to be if they don't stop building these poultry farms all the way along it and pig farms it's going to get so destroyed and be unusable yeah and and isn't it um interesting that you know at the beginning of of this conversation or, or early on we were talking about the significance of the river goddess you know yeah. at a, at a time when there would have been such deep respect for the river the idea of the river goddess and yet now you witness such terrible disrespect and harm another layer of harm in a history mm. that has already been constructed upon layers and layers of harm yeah no that's right um maybe i should read that piece about being inspired by what's happened in bangladesh where the river is considered a person in law and um that's happening in in lots of indigenous communities and um how again the question is who will fight for it and who will take it to the law court i could just read a few stanzas about about that if you like shall i that would be wonderful thank Mm. you it'd be fantastic Mm. because it gives the listeners context thank you very much we vigil walk we vigil talk when a river is hidden so is what enters it in law in bangladesh rivers are people But women are not always people. Who protects us from the protectors? Before long, the goddess will be fetid, disenchanting another dead zone, craving a phosphate fix and nitrate high. We'll find new ways to bury the poison fire. The moon is on her back. I see nothing but black water. Whoever doesn't hear the banshee will surely die. It's beautifully put together, but th- there's so much sadness, isn't there, um, that your that your work is essentially responding to? I think so, Paula. But you know, more and more, I know there's the epigenetic relationship with grief and trauma that's been proved around women who were pregnant with 9-11 in the the famine in Holland in the Second World War and undoubtedly was carried by the survivors of the famine. But also there's epigenetic joy. And, you know, if I hear a fiddle and my foot starts tapping, (laughs) you know, how, (laughs) how is that passed down? Is that in my genes? Is that, you know... There's also incredible laughter and recognition and pleasure and um, solace and fun in the book. And especially when we perform together, there's there's a bouncing off that is containing sadness, but is also celebrating life and um, physicality and senses. And yeah, so I think... Um, I'm probably I probably respond to both all the time, but it I think there's 
there's a tendency when you start to write to definitely write out your sorrow and then later you have to really be careful not just to be pulled in that direction because all darkness needs light to define it you know there so i've been much more drawn to resilience exuberance um as well as as the sadness it has more fun in it certainly than famished but um it's yeah i don't i i see the books as kind of if you're if you're struggling and you're you're drowning the books the raft isn't it and um it's it it gets you to the other shore and then it's it's um it's done its work for you and then hopefully it can take people you know down the river and their own rivers as well so that hopefully our pilgrimage becomes other people's pilgrimages um through the writing or through their own journeys yeah because um you talk about bearers of meaning so for example um you when you were making the point actually in terms of women uh are the bearers of meaning historically but not necessarily uh seen as the makers mm-hmm. of meaning mm. um or or that's just simply erased from history you know in terms of where they have been the makers of meaning and would you say that your experience through this pilgrimage almost really established your own existence as a maker of meaning and especially as a woman um I think I think I've probably all my books have done that in some way, you know, whether I was talking about being an immigrant and and experiencing anti-Irish racism in the 80s and then coming out as a lesbian and, and really putting that story in that I didn't feel had been spoken at all and having the right to speak about nationalism as a Protestant. And I just felt like how... Yeah, can I yeah, my 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 gender is part of that pilgrimage, definitely. Um, but it's also um much more as a a journey person, you know. I just feel like um I want I want this that that awareness of the protecting the land to be carried by everyone, for everyone to care about it and for um everyone's compassion to be ignited and it's it's um I suppose partly why I was you know drawn to working with Craig because he he has such a aliveness in him and he's such a he's so connected with the natural world and he was foraging and eating things as we walked along and you know he brought his his own relationship to land which you know isn't particularly gendered so you know it's I'm not sure if it established it, but it certainly continued what I've been trying to do in my work for a long time. And I think just being in the body, in in the landscape, was very different from... In Famished, I'm not so much in it. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Maybe in that poem where I talk about eating and looking at the 25 countries, that the simple meal where everything I'm eating has come from 25 countries. And... Um, wow. But yeah, being in the body was very significant. Having the really sore feet and 
you know, sore limbs and still walking. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I think it, it probably did connect back to famished in a way. Mm, yeah, uh, and, and perhaps um, more affirmation than than establishing. Um, it's interesting. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier how you posed the question, uh, can this be an Irish poem um, as you as you progress along this journey? Uh, can this be an Irish poem? And of course, you do conclude with this can be an Irish poem. So is that a statement of affirmation? Yes, yes, it is, it is definitely. And we felt by the end of it, 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 the land did belong to us and we belonged to it and that we had something to say, which we weren't sure we could at the beginning, quite honestly, we didn't know. And now the question for me is, can this just be an Irish poem? Isn't it a poem that can speak to everyone? Um, so it's it's taken on a different resonance for me. Can it be more than an Irish poem? Yes, because um, as I mentioned in my intro, um, it, because for, for me personally, it, it feels like this this lovely uh, call and response throughout. Mm. You know, whether it's between you as friends, your memories, or ancestors, but as I mentioned, also to the displaced. And what I had in my mind was literally all of the displaced across the world, which frighteningly is estimated now to be 100 million people forcibly displaced, 100 million refugees in yeah. the world. Yeah, at least, at least, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also I... I do feel the kind of luxury of that choice of choosing to walk and not having to carry everything we owned and and not having you know being homeless in it and being you know separated from your culture your land your people I mean it there is a moment where I just feel like this is so obscene because I've I've you know I don't need to do this and people in the past had to walk to escape trauma or terror or for work and it um I was very aware of those contradictions of privilege really yeah um it's also astonishing isn't it that when we can talk about statistics like that and everything we've talked about today um that reflects upon terrible terrible histories and acts of cruelty um Attitudes of cruelty, however, continue to exist. And so in terms of your work as a writer, as a poet and performance poetry, is that a hope um, perhaps to encourage and instill greater compassion amongst us all? I think... It's definitely a driving thing for me to keep expanding my sense of compassion, um, keep being open, keep being aware of being groundless and things changing and loss being part of what 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 it takes to to exist as a human. Um, and this question of cruelty, I mean, it's it's in us all and we're you know constantly negotiating with 
acts of unkindness and and I think that's why it makes it very hard to make judgments when there's a war like in the Ukraine and and when we we have things we can't reconcile in ourselves you know we can't it, it's it, people we no longer speak to or judgments we make or failings to to be as generous as you wish you could be and and I've I've always felt like the poems take me there the poems show me a way of of finding comfort or insight or transformation through them and if that can work for other people it's fantastic and it it surprises me when it does and it's um it's more that um negotiation with the the insight really that that brings the poem about and then that goes out into the world hopefully and and um helps helps people to reconsider or look more deeply or pause yeah and i and i i wondered if um i mentioned you know you're the associate professor in creative and critical writing at the university of greenwich and how all of this informs your your teaching um uh, what it is you're in, encouraging we've mentioned um courage a lot it's taken a lot of personal courage um f- for you um to confront some of the issues and even to undertake uh, the pilgrimage um but there is a a very important role isn't there um around courage in whatever form that may take and and also encouraging curiosity being prepared to explore um I I wonder if these are value points that come out in your in your own teaching I hope so (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I've always taught international poets whether it's the Turkish poet who spent a lot of time in prison Azim Hikmet or more recently Claudia Rankin who wrote Citizen which was all about you know black men really um, being picked up or killed by the police in America, but microaggressions around race, um, issues around difference and and understanding difference and expressing it, all of those things have always driven my work. And then probably more laterally questions of mindfulness and how to help the students with the incredible challenges they have, the huge debt and the huge rent and working while studying, all the things I didn't have have to do. And I think just helping them to understand how to process some of the anxiety and use writing and reading for that, that's that's very important in my work, definitely. And um, and I, I get... A huge amount back from them um, from their amazing energy and insight and their non-binary adventures and all of that so mm. yeah it's it's good to be a, a working poet I think that that's important to me I don't want to be too detached and off in a remote spot all the time <laughs> I dream of it yeah but I don't think it's actually gonna create <laughs> important work necessarily and of course mindfulness really does encourage doesn't it uh reflection it's, it's often referred to as gentle curiosity it's mindful mm. um, that people are approaching their traumas so to to do that carefully and with that in mind um 
we I opened this conversation uh, with you noting how at the beginning of this pilgrimage, uh, you and Craig both felt like fraudsters. So in terms of that process of reflection and perhaps with your bringing your skills of mindfulness to that reflection, how would you say you felt at the end of that journey? What was that arc moving from feeling like a fraudster? Well, it was incredibly exhilarating to touch the lighthouse at the end of the Barmouth, at the end of Port Stewart Strand, at the end of eight days, about 85 miles of walking and going along the river and and throwing the sycamore stick into the sea and the sycamore stick in in some cultures a, a student told me this he's Romanian and he said it's the stick for the adventurer and I thought you know I I'm in my 60s and I went on this adventure because I felt like there was some answer and you just come up I guess with more questions but you're the base of you is is broader. You're kind of you're expanded in the world. You feel more generous. You feel kinder. You feel like you have been part of the land. I mean, like at the end, I say, you know, I'm like a hobo. I've I've not lived around corners. I've lived, you know, out in the air and being under the sky and seeing what happens. And that was incredibly liberating. And I think, you know, I sort of intimate it. It is like losing a lot of those classical material comforts is is a bit a bit like shedding shedding stuff before you go into another realm or something you know it's um it's really you know the path becomes the clock and and we're so completely bound by by time and pings and our little machines or devices i mean we we used an old-fashioned map we hardly ever used google or had our phones even on and it was it was just so freeing to be in a completely different element that's what it felt like and and just incredibly satisfying you know you set up this challenge and and you succeed in doing it and it's um and then actually the writing was much much harder than we could have imagined but uh that it was really when the work began after the walk <laughs> it's really interesting I, I did love actually reading that choice to uh do this organically you know good old-fashioned reading a mm-hmm. map and not relying on you know geolocation sat nav type stuff with satellites spinning around your heads because I felt that was really ramping up the importance and the value of curiosity you you know your natural curiosity leading you along your own journey and otherwise you're effectively only being led aren't you yeah that's right that's right and and the not knowing was incredibly hard actually after the walk as well not knowing and both of us went off and wrote and then came together and cut and pasted and worked out the themes and how we're where we're going to approach it we didn't even know if we wanted to do it chronologically um but that was that was a very kind of tender time you know for months we'd meet up and rehearse things and read things and Craig had learned the Boron in, in lockdown, so he was playing that, and that really brought us back into the rhythm of walking. 
and in a way hard to get the the, the liveness and the yeah the alacrity of the, that walk in the writing afterwards that was the challenge and it it was absolutely terrifying at times you know he was despairing and I was picking him up and then they would the roles would reverse and of course that's the joy of collaborating when you have those two energies and and uh, then when we performed with we've performed it with the flautist and then with the fiddler and then it becomes something else it becomes like a song um some sort of walking song and we both sing and it's um yeah it's been such a surprise Mm, and it's interesting because when you have to think what is it that helps you to keep going you know when um you're physically exhausted this is by no means an easy walk it's physically grueling it's emotionally demanding um you know and it and it takes courage you know it can be a frightening process even with the things that you're revisiting or your publisher saying nice try go back go deeper go closer to what's difficult go closer to trauma none of that is an easy ask so it's things like music and rhythm a way of coping is that a way of creating the courage that you need yeah the when we brought the boron in it was like a third element between us and we'd never worked with another writer i've worked with musicians before and that was really strange because we'd tell each other stories and then he would go away and write something um which became his and then you know i would be writing something he might have told me say about his grandfather or his aunt who whose husband got shot and it it was just a really interesting exchange. It was generous and it was expansive. And all the time we didn't know how to keep it in the air. And yeah, once we got on stage and we had the flute and there's a little QR code at the front of the book, which plays the flute and a bit of the walking and what we were saying as we went along, which we recorded. And it, it was yeah, fascinating to triangulate it with music. And, and I think that lifts it into a whole other dimension, really, in um, in terms of the two voices. And then this third element, which is the river or the road. Um, yeah. So as um, I'm, I'm conscious, I'm, I'm creeping over the hour and stealing your time. What would your reflections be on the series question, cannot save us? Obviously not a yes, no answer. It's a deliberately bold question, but we've been talking about really huge histories that hold a lot of trauma and a lot of difficulty. And obviously poetry as as, as an art form is, is, is a form of expression that's helped you. So I'm curious what your reflections on that on that question are, um, or maybe you've got lines of poetry that answer the question better. What's the question? <laughs> just just looking at the series question: Can art save us? Oh, I see that series. Yeah, your series: Can art save us? I think if we don't have art we're going to be in a much worse state. We're going to be less connected. We're going to be less joyful. We're going to be less curious. 
it's going to become much more punitive, cruel. I mean, the affirmation, the joy, the solidarity, the insight, all the things I get from art, visual art, poetry, music, I could not imagine surviving without them. I couldn't imagine the dealing with what we have to deal with without having those moments of expansiveness and yeah just someone else giving you what's gone on in their mind having caught you know we're all living in this state of a terrible uncertainty and fear and and what's going to happen with the future and just to be in someone else's mind in that that um quiet space of their creativity is so nourishing and then you can go out and be an activist or you can go and look after your sick parent or you can decide to adopt or you can go and you know help refugees in Greece I don't I don't know but without it without that holding your hand without that giving you the courage to do it I think it's it's almost it would be impossible I couldn't imagine it. Of course, it saves us all the time, every day. It's it's got to be there, and um, yeah. Thank goodness for art. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and perhaps um, inevitably, um, the river is hidden is reviewed as a vital work, moving and vital work, and highlighting that it's written with heartbreaking honesty and integrity. So, Cherry, I can't thank you enough for your time um, to talk so specifically and carefully about this history in Ireland around the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland and to have such careful insights. I, I really do appreciate your time and, and being prepared to go so close to some personal traumas of your own thank you very much for joining me today thanks paula 